I remember having a call from the neighbor who was an architect. He's sitting on his dining room table where he could see out onto the site. He goes, James, um, I think you need to come down here. I go, I think, you know, shit, what have they done? I go, they've broken your window, your fence or something. He goes, no, they're building this house at the wrong level. I go, what do you mean? He goes, by the time they finish, it's going to be a meter, one meter, 1.8 meters too high, and the council are going to make you take it down. Welcome to another show of the Isle of Monday podcast. Today we have the property expert of the East End and of Dubai, James Ahota. Wow, what an intro, man. Thank you. Thanks <laughs> for having me, first of all. Feels a bit understated. So yeah. yeah, thank you. Okay, firstly, what are you doing in Dubai? Well, what am I doing in Dubai? Um, I left about a year ago to go to Dubai. I think uh, I'd like to say it was a sixth sense that I knew that the UK was heading towards a dive. But I don't think it was, you know, I felt that we wanted to just, um, we wanted to try something new. And uh, I think Dubai being innovators in the way they're going with everything, it just seemed like the perfect place to go. You know, when we started to assess Dubai against the UK, um, we soon realised that, you know, Dubai's got a lot more positives than obviously what's going on in the UK. Now, look, I'm not dissing the UK. I love the UK. I've been here ever since I was a kid, born and bred in the East End like yourself. It's a, it's a place close to my heart, but at the same time, I was failing to see positivity here. You know, I was failing to see what the place was doing for me, and Dubai was ticking a lot of the boxes. I mean, my only negative about Dubai is at certain times of the year it gets unbearably hot, but that's one negative, man. That's it, one negative out of the lot. But what am I doing in Dubai at the moment? I'm doing exactly what I was doing in the UK. I'm in the real estate market. I've gone to learn the real estate market. So I've been in there for a year now, like I said. Um, and real estate in Dubai is totally different to real estate in the UK, man. Somebody can buy and complete on a house in 48 hours. That's unheard of here, you know. They won't even raise a sales memorandum in 48 hours. Yeah, just that country. can get solicitors instructed in that time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's a good learning curve. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things that hit me when I got straight to Dubai was... Everybody is a baller out there. You know, you got people in the UK, oh man, I've got 10 properties, I've got 15 properties, I'm, my net worth is this. You come to Dubai, man, you know, a local guy working in an office can have that kind of net worth out there. There's just wealth everywhere, but it's, I call it humble wealth. You know, you can be a cleaner on the street and you could be talking to somebody who's got a 100 million dirham house. And I've never really seen any kind of Yes, there's a clear divide between poverty and the rich, but I haven't ever seen anybody speak disrespectfully to people out there. What is it, do you think, that creates that humble community? I feel it's probably the beginnings of where Dubai started, you know. It wasn't always what it is today. It was a place that was just there. In, it was strategically placed in the world and it was used as a shipping dock or a, a passing through land. And I think one man's vision has created it what it is today. It's not like... England, where we've been, you know, historically rich. The companies had, the countries had wealth for so long. Dubai hasn't. It's 50 years of wealth. One person's come along, had a vision, and created this amazing thing. And even today, when the sheikh says, I'm going to have flying helicopters, you know, as Uber, or I'm going to have flying cars, nobody looks at him and says, ah, this guy's a nutter. Because you know, give it two, three years' time, you're going to see an Uber helicopter arriving outside your house to take you to where you want to go. And he's already... Uh, given permission on flying cars by 2025 so the place is in a way sometimes I think the place is nuts 
on some of the stuff they do. But other times you just respect the guy so much you think, damn, man, the guy's got a vision. And he's not sitting around talking about it in the House of Commons, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. He says he's going to do something, and a year later that thing's done. And you're like, this is a man of the word, you know, and how can that not inspire people to be better in life when you've got a leader like that? So when you go there and you see these kind of visions, does it make your mind open a lot more? Yeah. Because over here, it's a lot more closed-minded. You can have, still have a vision, but there's all sorts of restrictions, negativities. In Dubai, it just seems positive energy and it makes you go that one bit further. Yeah, do you know what? I think Dubai just makes you think differently as well. The minute you get there, when you've been there for a period of time, you do start to think differently because people want to help each other. You know, here we've got people that are just competing against each other. You know, you might go to a fellow um, real estate guy or a property guy here and say, bro, can I have a look around your development? He's going to be like, no, nah, why does this guy want to look around my stuff? I don't want him learning my tactics and my tricks. He wants to nick pick... my builders. Yeah, yeah, he wants to nick my trades team. There, it's like, oh, brother, come in, have a cup of tea, sit with my family, I'll show you around, no problem. Happy to talk you through this, can help you with this. I felt there's a... Um, People are very, very like-minded there. Very, very positive. Even, even the people that are earning peanuts there, you know. I'm talking people that work 12 hours a day that are being paid 200 pounds a month. The labourers. There's a real positivity there. You know, I've gone to the labour camps before and I've seen what it's like there. And it's horrendous conditions, man. Let's face it, it is, there is a totally different side to Dubai. But even those guys are upbeat because they know the position that they're in is providing for their family back home and they're building something. So I think even when you're poor in Dubai, everybody's still got a way of thinking that is really positive. Let's uh, take you back memory lane and talk about James from the East End. <laughs> How was he as a teenager growing up? But, uh, oh man, if my dear mum was alive today, man, she'd be shaking her head like this because when I grew up, I was like every other East Londoner, always in trouble, man, always in trouble. The early years were just um, like, you know, messing around, not doing very well in school, but being very able to do well in school. Didn't take school seriously. Um, going into the teens, getting arrested. What did uh, you do? Had a fight. Had a fight on the street. It involved alcohol, you know, like you do when you're growing up. Um, Ended up having an altercation with somebody, ended up having a fight, got arrested by the police. Did you end the fight? It, it, yeah, it was bad, man. It was really, it was a bad fight. I don't like to talk about it, man, but some of the things I did back then, you think to yourself, oh, man, there must have been somebody up there that saved my ass. Because even in my 20s, I very narrowly missed a prison sentence. And I think it was that point where my life changed, where I thought, uh-uh, no way, man. You think to yourself, I don't care how big a man you are. When you're locked up in Forest Gate Police Station and the barrister's saying to you, oh, James, you know, you fractured this guy's skull here on his face or something by your antics, you know, you're looking at a minimum of five years and you're thinking, oh, man, I'm no bad man now, man. I'm there. Like, as soon as that door closed, I'm in tears thinking, shit, my life's over. You know, so I think there were certain lessons that the East End really teaches you. But number one, it makes you very wise, I think, you know, very streetwise. Because you see people that don't come from like areas like we've grown up in, and they don't they don't understand the basic of things. I think the the East End teaches you a lot. It's got its own education. But coming back to what you said, man, James growing up, yeah, it was a 
my mom would say it's a very color, he had a very colorful upbringing and it was very very colorful but I was very respectful to my parents very respectful to my teachers but I realized early on in life that as important as education is I could see around me the people that were doing well the people in their 90s that were driving brand new S classes were either in business or they were doing property development. And it was very clear to see the Asian people that were doing that then. So I think something sparked in my head early on that it's not all about education. But having said that, I went to university, I did my degree, I did my master's, I trained as a teacher and never really used any of those, you know? What was it when you were in that cell that just sparked your mind thinking, you know, I need to turn my life around? So, number one, they kept me there for, they can keep you for 24 hours, yeah? They kept me there for 23 and three quarters. So, almost 24 hours. And you're there in this white suit. You're stripped of everything, yeah? At first, you're angry. Like, yeah, yeah, what am I doing here? I need to get out banging on the door. Then suddenly, you start realizing the consequences of what you've done. And then when you're in a confined space like that, there's two things you do. Number one, you count all the tiles because you need to pass time. And I still remember this clearly, counting all the tiles. And number two, you think to yourself, okay, now what happens if I end up getting sent to prison for this? What's gonna, how is this gonna affect me? You know? And then you start thinking to yourself, okay, you start feeling remorseful. You start thinking to yourself, man, what have I just done? You know, what have I just done to this person under the influence of alcohol? And then at that point, I said to myself, I, I remember, I've always been a person of faith. I said, God, if you get me out of this situation, I won't do any more messing around, any more nonsense like I've been doing. And I strongly believe I was given a second chance that day, man. And, you know, since that day, it was just a, a complete U-turn. Because I thought to myself, right, look, now, now you've made a promise to God, man. You've gone, not your parents' level, you've gone one above. You mess around here, there could be some serious consequences. You know what it's like in East London? People have faith, man. People believe in God. People are God-fearing people. And I was a God-fearing person. So I think in that cell, it taught me like, Rook, you've been given a second chance here. And you need to take this second chance and do something positive with it. So what was the first thing you did with your second chance? Well, when I came out of that cell, I think we went to A1 Kebabish. <laughs> you know on Romford Road? I've got a lunch meeting there tomorrow. Yeah, my favourite place, man. Been going there 23 years or something, ever since it first opened. But no, seriously, after that, it was like, okay, um, get serious about your studies. Because I was in university at the time. I thought, get serious about your universities. Get your degree done. Just get your head down. And I dropped out of Westminster University and I signed up to be in Manchester where I just got away from all the nonsense here. I disappeared for three years, left East London, left all my friends, left anybody here that was pulling me in the wrong direction. And I tell you, when you move out and you go to a place where your own people ain't there, you suddenly realize, okay, man, this shit's just about, just got real now. So best thing I did was get out and just move. So you had a print business as well, wasn't it? I did, yeah, yeah. Um, what was the reason you started that? Good story. So when I came back from university, um, you know, like when you go to university, you think, okay, you know what, I'm going to get my degree, I'll get my master's, I'm going to get a job, easy, man. Yeah. Things are sorted, I'll buy a car, I'll get a house, have a few kids, life's going to be sorted. But it's not always that easy. You leave university and you're like, okay, no one really wants to employ me, man. What's going on here? So came back, trained as a, actually, I went in to see one of my old school teachers and he said to me, he goes, oh, James, um, 
you want to do some teaching here? Like make some money? I thought, you know what, look, I've just come out, I've got a debt, let's just do some teaching. And then suddenly, in a year's time, I'm fully trained as a teacher. And then I fell into teaching and I absolutely hated it. You know, I didn't hate, I liked the aspect of teaching children. I didn't like what came with it. You know, for me, teaching children was just keeping 30 people entertained for an hour, five times a day, which came quite easily. You know, we talked about all things. We didn't even talk about the teaching. We're talking about mortgages, how to buy a house, earnings. But I realized that there has to be more to life than that. And a friend of mine was already running a very successful eBay business. eBay had just kicked off then. And eBay made a lot of people millionaires in a short period of time. And we're sitting there one night and he goes to me, he goes, you got that printer, yeah, from a university that you had to print all your draft drawings on. I go, yeah, he goes, what's it doing? I said, it's just sitting there in my office. He goes, bruv, print some pictures off, just some pictures of cars or whatever, sell them on eBay. I thought, okay. He goes, don't worry about copyright. eBay's so fresh, there's nothing there. So we put some pictures of some old, um, I think it was old 1950s Ferrari Dinos. I still remember, black background, red car. We put a couple of those on eBay. I thought nothing of it. $9.99, A3 poster, you know, nice high quality print. Thought nothing, $2.99 for the postage, nothing. Next day, wake up and like 10 have sold. We're thinking, okay, man, this, this is good. So we increased the range. We put all the cars on there. Got Google, high-res images, stuck them all on. We superimposed them on a wall so they looked good. And then in a short period of time, the store started turning a couple of thousand pounds over. And then you're thinking to yourself, hold on a second. I'm making more money doing this than I am in my teaching job. Why am I stuck there? So carried on going with the teaching job because, you know, it was difficult to try and tell your mum, oh, I'm quitting my job to sell pictures on eBay. You know, any Indian mum, first things you're going to do is slap you around your face, say, what the hell are you doing? So as soon as we made enough money, we bought a bigger printer. We bought a bigger printer. And then the business started in a small room in my house, then went to my front room. Then I overtook my kitchen. I had a packaging station. And it was enough was enough. I got married and my mum was like, look, you need to get a unit. You can't run a business from a house. And cut a long story short, man, it just, it just spiraled. It got to a point we were doing printing. We stopped doing pictures. No, we carried on doing pictures. We went into vehicle branding. We went into signage. We started doing exhibition builds. We started doing everything. Where, so, where was your unit? Tilbury. Okay. In the old Barter Shoe Factory. That was our last unit. So you imagine we started, you know, in your meeting room, we were sitting in a room smaller than that we started. When we finished, 20,000 square foot in wow. Tilbury. Serving people like uh, London XL, uh, NEC. We'd have trucks coming, loading print on rolls and rolls of print going out. We bought a two million pound five meter printing machine. And, you know, it, it, sometimes I used to walk around as aid and I used to think, how the hell did this happen? Like, I couldn't work out in my head, how did this happen? So how did it happen? If you had to look back at it now. A lot of it was self-belief. A lot of it was me like telling myself, no, nah, I'm going to be the... Print, it, when I started, was very much a, um, an English man's game. And I remember that very, very early on. Like, you know, um, when I'd speak to clients and I'd turn up for a meeting, they go, oh, yeah, we spoke to James. I go, what? Am I the wrong colour? You know, you turn up. Nice way to break the ice, but it was very much um, a European man's game. Um, but there was self-belief. I used to tell myself, no, 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 I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to get to a level where I'm at the same level as them. And we did. We got to a point where we were a threat to him because people would be saying, 
who are you using? Oh yeah, we're using James now. NEC saying, yeah, we're using James now. And you're like, okay, I've got to that stage where I am a threat. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of self-belief and telling myself, yeah, and visualizing in my head. You know, seeing these machines at trade shows in Birmingham and thinking, I'm gonna get one of those. I don't know how, but somehow I'm gonna get one of those. So how did how did you or when did you stop trading or so, did you sell the business? <laughs> no, we didn't sell the business. The, the business we put into voluntary liquidation. Okay. So when everything was good, everything was running nicely. We had staff, all of that, all good. Now I made the fundamental fundamental mistake that that business was very much me. It wasn't the team. It was very much me. The relationships were built with me. People wanted to speak to me. People wanted to deal with me. Um, and I had a period where I was off ill from work for about four months with pneumonia. And during that time, things just went downhill. We lost three of our biggest clients. And our, the three of our biggest clients used to cover all of our fixed rate costs for the, for the year. You know, running a 20,000 square foot uh, warehouse was not cheap. Paying the rates on that thing was not cheap. Servicing the finance costs on the machines wasn't cheap, but it was good. Those clients we had that uh, allowed us to build up the, the turnover and the income to cover all our flat costs. And then all the other clients we had on top of that was just the cream on top. When I got ill, accounts started to get messed up. Jobs got screwed up. And we got one chance, you know, with some of the people, that some of the big accounts we messed up with. Because these guys, man, look, as soon as you mess up, they're not happy because it's time sensitive, it's deadlines. If print doesn't turn up to the NEC, you could have an exhibition guy coming from Germany who's gonna display there and his stand isn't built, mm. you know? So it's a knock on effect. They forgave us once, they forgave us twice. And you know, I explained to them, look, I'm ill. And their response was, well, you ain't got no more, just step into your shoes. It's a ruthless business. Absolutely, man. And then when I came back, I thought to myself, you know what? We've got six months worth of cash flow that will see us through. But what happens then? These clients took five years to build relationships with. What am I gonna do? Am I gonna, how, I can't get this many clients in five years. It was in six months, it was impossible. So held the white flag up, went into voluntary liquidation, hardest thing I've ever done in my life because that business is like my baby, man. I had that business before I had my children. It was my thing. And at the time when it went under, I blamed everybody else. Everybody, oh, it was you, head of production, it was you. It was you, operations manager, it was you. You fucked this up, you did this, you did that. And then I remember the last day when I had to hand the keys over to the liquidator, because for anybody listening, when you go into liquidation, somebody literally comes up, takes your keys, and takes over your business, everything, and you are just gone. I remember the tow truck arriving a few weeks prior, taking the lease cars, you know, and people know your skin. You know, when, when a tow truck arrives, you can tell when it's a bailiff taking your car and the neighbors know when they're taking your car. And I still remember thinking, shit, man, this is, this is rather embarrassing. But after, when I got home a few weeks later, after I finished blaming everybody, after I got all over it, I look, looked in the mirror, hard stare at myself and said, that business went under because of you. You didn't prefer, you know, you didn't have the right staffing structure there. You should have gone off and got some training to understand structures management, people that you need in certain positions. I didn't do that. I just thought, I'm on this winning streak. Let me keep going. How many people do you know that go for business mentoring once their business has failed? Not many. I did, because I wanted to know what went wrong. And when I got a coach, I realized every single thing I did wrong. 
And it was so painful. Because I was, he said to me, the coach goes to me, he goes, James, he goes, like, you're a bit teary, what's up? I said, I'm teary because I should have employed you two years ago and I wouldn't have these issues. Because he's telling me everything that went wrong, everything that's gone wrong. And I'm just thinking, shit, man. What were some of the things your business mentor told you? So I think number one, the first thing he told me was that um, the structure was all wrong in the company. Um, he told me that although on paper I was the managing director, I shouldn't have been the director of the business. As in, I shouldn't have been the person running the business. My skills were always sales and going out there and meeting with clients and gaining clients. He said you could very much own the business, but you don't need to be the hierarchy guy there to be at the top. He goes, get somebody who can do that way better than you. And that was the number one thing I realized straight away that I should have. And I was six months prior about to employ someone who'd been in the game 35 years. Um, but, you know, it was that mentality where like, nah, what the hell, man? I could do this myself. What's this guy talking about? I've got to pay him 60 grand a year. I could do it myself. But then you think about it, you think, no, nah, man, that guy knows way more than me. But at the time, it was the, I would say it was arrogance, you know, it was arrogance when you think to yourself, I built this myself. I built, I built this myself. Bull crap. Who cares? You know, I can do this. I've done it before. So number one, he taught me that the structure was all wrong. He goes, number two, the staff that you had were overworked too much. My thing was when a staff member would come to me and say, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm really, really struggling with this. We'd be like, okay, you know, you've been here a couple of years. Let's give you some more money. You unstruggle with it. Yeah. And that's not the way to go. You know, we had some big Polish guys that used to work for us. And I still remember ahead of a print production coming into the office, breaking down, like crying. And I'm thinking to myself, sure, what's going on here, man? And then our answer was, we'll offer you some more money and put some more pressure on the guy. And you, then only afterwards you realize, man, everything that went wrong was my fault. And I should have got that business mentor because if I had that business mentor, there's a strong chance that business will still be here today. So what would you have done differently when your head of production has come to you and you've given him more money? So what would you have done today? What I should have done differently, number one, is said to him, go and have a few days off, first of all. Because if someone's coming in and crying, this is a big, strong dude, man. If he's broken down into tears and you don't know why, and he's saying to you, James, I don't know why I'm feeling this way. Number one, he should have been given time off. Number two, the whole structure should have been reconsidered and everybody's position should have been looked at and look at it properly and think, is he doing too much? Like, come on, be real with yourself. You know if somebody's doing too much. Um, you know, they got to a point, we were running our place 24 hours and sometimes these guys would work 18 hours. That's not right, man. But at the time... You just didn't see that because you thought, oh, you know what, they're paid really, really well. They're there, they've got food, they can order drinks, they're chilling, they've got the music on, the TVs are on. But inside, yeah, I'm overworking them without even knowing what I'm doing to someone's welfare and well-being. But also you were working in the business as well, wasn't it? Yes. Rather than Absolutely, man. looking from a bird's eye point of view. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, man. When you're working in your business, you can't work on your business. Yeah. You know, when you're inside a place, you can't overlook and see what's going on. You know, it's like a property developer. A property developer might not necessarily get his hands dirty, but he might be the smartest person in the whole project because he knows what to do. But he's not sitting there with a Makita drill, you know, putting plasterboard up. He's on the outside looking in, making sure everything's going on. 
Whereas I was on the outside looking in, but very much on the inside getting involved as well, when I shouldn't have been. It's like a player manager, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. So a lot of things went wrong. And ultimately, I put my hands up. You know, I'm not in contact with some of the staff because it's, it ended badly. When you go into liquidation, they tell you not to even tell the staff. This is one of the things in this country when you go into liquidation, come Friday, six o'clock, you have to tell everybody, sorry, there's no work on Monday, the place is closing down. And that was a hard thing to do. And you can imagine, man, people were angry. But if I could go back right now, the first thing I would be doing is apologizing to every single person that I was unable to apologize to. Why, why did I say don't tell the staff? I have no idea, man. I have no idea why they do that. It makes, in my head, it makes more sense to tell the staff. Yeah. Because number one, if they're attached to the company, they'll think, okay, let's try and do something about it. Yeah. Or number two, it's for their own self. They, they can start looking. Yeah. It doesn't mean they'll necessarily leave early. Yeah. But they can start looking for their own future and look for other jobs. Because come Monday, they don't have an income. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I don't know why this is what we were told not to tell them till the last day. So immediately after your business closed down, you gave the keys back. Mm. You, and after you settled down with your thoughts, what were you doing? So for a long, for about, I would say for a period of three months after when I handed the keys in, I was in a very bad place. Like physically, very, very bad place. Mentally, you know, spent many days just drinking, just to numb the pain. But it wasn't numbing the pain, it was just making it worse, you know, because the problems were still there. So what we ended up doing, well, not what I ended up doing, it was actually my wife who gave me the kick up the arse. She said, look, one of the most positive things you've done during this business is buying homes and real estate and done little developments like you know i was clever enough to put profits into property and do projects although they were very hands-off projects and just before we went into liquidation a year before that i bought a plot of land in south london and just gained planning on it and uh, she said to me there you go that's your route out go and build the house go and get the team go and do the house and I was like, you know what, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And, you know, my wife said, stop being a pussy and get out there and do what you need to do. You know, and um, at the time, you come out of a liquidation, you've got no money. So our first investor was our, my in-laws. You know, they were like, look, we got full faith you can do this. Go and get it done. So they invested in the project. Uh, happy to say we did give them a return and got their money back. But again, there were some shaky times during that project as well, man. So... It, I would say it was my wife who got me out of the black hole there um, and pushed me to do something. Otherwise, God, man, I don't know what I don't know what I would have done. I don't know how long that negative period and that slump would have gone on for. Where, where was your self-belief during the first property project? Or at what level was your self-belief? Because obviously, when you're running your business, it was at a high. Yeah. And obviously, it comes crashing down. It was... When I first started, I was as nervous as hell, man, because I'd done renovations before, but this was a new-build house. And it was a basement dug house. So you can think, and it was a portion of land between two houses, so access was rubbish. Uh, double yellow land outside, you can't park, materials can't get there. So everything was against me to start with, but I thought, no, we're going to do this. Self-belief when I started, very, very, very low, man. Very low. And again, I'm a very trusting person, man, at face value. And there's a guy in our gym who's a builder, known him for years, thought, you know what? He's a brother, see him every single morning. Let's give him the job. Had no idea of payment plans, had no idea of scheduled payments or being in front of the builder. 
He just said, give me 20 grand to start with, and then give me 20 grand with the foundations, and give me 20 grand when this is it, give me 20 grand when this is it. And you're thinking, oh, that sounds fair. Didn't check the site, full-blown put trust in him. I remember having a call from the neighbor who was an architect. He's sitting on his dining room table where he could see out onto the site. He goes, James, um, I think you need to come down here. I go, I'm thinking, oh, shit, man, what have they done? I go, they've broken your window, your fence or something. He goes, no, they're building this house at the wrong level. I go, what do you mean? He goes, by the time they finish, it's going to be a meter, one meter, 1.8 meters too high, and the council are going to make you take it down. Got on the train, went straight down there. But these idiots hadn't excavated the ground, and they'd started from normal ground level. You know, and, I, and they got to the first level. So they've done the foundations, they've done everything. Building control comes along. I said to building control, you've been checking this. I go, did you not see the level that they started at? He goes, no, our job is just to check foundations, make sure it's been built properly. I had to come all down. I remember standing at that site, it was raining, the site filled up with water, and I'm thinking, I've been given my mother-in-law and father-in-law have given me money for this project. How do I now go back home and tell my wife that I have to start all over again, I've lost all the money, and she told me not to use my friend at the gym as well, so I was going to get a big, I told you so. And it was hard, man. I'm thinking, James, you fucked up again. You know, I'm standing there looking at this site thinking, I've screwed it. Lucky for me, one of the properties in East London, it, uh, it was coming up to a, um, a remortgage, and the rates had just gone lower, and I was speaking to my financial advisor. He said, look, we can pull out some extra money. It's not going to be much more on your mortgage. And it was like a, another life had been sent to me, man. Another lifeline. You're like a cat, man. Yeah, absolutely. I think I must be at number eight by now. I better not make any more mistakes. And uh, we got extra money and we went again. But, brother, I tell you, this time, things were different, man. Now, my confidence level had gone from there. It had gone up there. But in a way that I thought to myself, right, now nobody's going to screw me. I don't give a monkeys. You ain't getting away with nothing. Payment plans came in. Schedule of work came in. Contracts came in. Everything came in. We started interviewing builders. We started going to the sites. We started saying to builders, I want 10 references and I'm randomly going to contact five of those. I'm going to randomly turn up on sites and speak to people. And, you know, when this started happening, you started thinking, yeah, now I've got confidence in myself. No one's going to screw me over. And through that exercise, we lost about six months, seven months, but we found a great Hungarian build team. You know, excellent Hungarian build team. Such a clever guy this guy was. He's an engineer by trade. Um, and he just understood everything. He's looking at the plans and he's telling me, before things are even built, he goes, this isn't going to work because head height's too small. This isn't going to work. You're going to run into this problem. And, you know, he was a godsend. And you know what the worst thing is? he was actually cheaper than the friend. Had I gone with him initially, he was cheaper. And the product that came out at the end was fantastic. You know, I can't fault it. And I take a lot of credit because I've done the organizing, but ultimately Gabor and his team did that. And the team was fantastic, man. You know, he knew how to look after people. His team were happy. Seven o'clock in the morning builders are there working till five, happy as anything. Workmanship was great. But towards the end of the project, we ran out of money. And it wasn't his fault. Again, my fault. You know why? 
Because the price that I beat him up on in the beginning, that he gave me a discount of 15 grand on, when we got to the end, we were short 13 and a half grand. And he said to me, he goes, and I'm thinking, you know what? That's the last time I beat a builder up on price. Because this was a very thorough quote he'd given me. And he kept telling me, kept telling me. But you know, little, little ounce of arrogance and ego kicks in where, I don't know what it is with an Indian man. When you're bargaining or doing deal, you want to get the last word and you want the best price. Someone says to you 400, you want it for free 90 so you can walk away down the street thinking, ha, I've done him over. But nah, he done me over in the end because I had to get somebody else to just finish the last bits in. So yeah, but during that time, the confidence levels went from literally zero, I would say from minus. And by the time we finished, I was in a position where like, man, I'm ready. I can take on any project. Is that when you decided to do property development full time? Yeah, that was it. After that, I just went full blown in. Um, had multiple HMO projects running in Middlesbrough at the time. Got the funding line right. I think the funding line is the number one thing in this game. If you haven't got a pot of money that you're sitting on or you've got a very small pot of money you're sitting on, you need to make sure you've got a good funding line where people can fund your deals. Yeah. You know, as soon as you've got a funding line, you've got a good solicitor who can review legal packs for you, get you out of trouble. You've got a good accountant who can make sure you keep most of your money. Then you're on fire. You might as well keep going. So then, if you've got all these projects, why Dubai? Or what made you move to Dubai? <coughs> you know, I think, I think back now, here, things are getting comfortable. And I think when you get comfortable, you're not growing. Because what was happening here was we were finishing a HMO project. We're adding a few thousand pounds onto the bottom line for that month. You do another HMO project, you add a couple more thousand pounds on. But you learned the system and there wasn't no more excitement in it. You know, you knew exactly what to do. Okay, I'm going to do this. It was rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. There was nothing more than that going on. And I know in order to grow, I need to be uncomfortable. And I knew Dubai was going to get me uncomfortable. And Dubai still gets me uncomfortable till this day. It's not a morning that I get up where I think, you know what, today I'm just going to chill now, man. That place is 100 miles per hour. What was the first thing you did in Dubai? First thing I did in Dubai was I went there and I interviewed real estate companies. Because let's face it, in Dubai, the barrier to get into real estate sales is very low. Because it's a commission-only role. I say this to people who want to move to Dubai. I say it's commission-only. Don't get me wrong, the commissions are mad. You can earn some serious cash. But you, you gotta be a, your mindset in that game has to be totally different. And I wanted to learn the business inside out because ultimately I want my own brokerage at some point and my own construction company. When you've worked for yourself, it's very difficult to go and work for somebody else. Although I've got a great team around me, uh, it's very, very difficult. So now I'm in Dubai, I'm going around and I'm speaking to different real estate companies because I wanna work with the best company. I want to work with the best people. I want to learn this business from the best people. So I went around, spoke to a few companies, and then eventually found the one that was really good. I could find, that I could relate to them. I could see their values. And yeah, I'm with this firm at the moment. I'm learning daily. I'm growing daily. Um, and I'm exploring now developments in Dubai, which is where, that's my happy place, man, doing developments. I like being on building sites. I like, not so much the money you can make. The money is just a byproduct. For me, it's about creating a product. Once the product's created, once the project is finished, I'm bored of it, man. Even if it's paying me every month, it's not the money. I need to move on to something else and create something. The buzz comes and the kick comes from making and creating a product, not from what it's giving me financially. So in, 
uh, in Dubai, yeah. when you're speaking to these brokers, uh, what what is it that you're exactly looking for? What, uh, as in, as for investments? Uh, no, for yourself. So what is it that you are looking for to get started or to make oh, sure okay. that so someone Oh, okay, so when I'm speaking you. to these brokerage companies, yeah, yeah. okay, so I'm, I'm going in there and it's really odd now. I'm still remembering what the business coach has taught me. So I'm walking into companies thinking, okay, have they got a good uh, uh, management organized structure here? Have they got people in certain positions covering something? So have they got somebody who controls leasing? Have they got someone who controls sales? Because in Dubai, they have in-house conveyancing teams, they have in-house mortgage teams. So everything's just done in one building. So I wanted to know, is every one of those departments covered with staff? And the question was yes. Sorry, the answer was yes. Do they have support staff supporting you with paperwork? Because paperwork, I don't want to get, I don't want to be doing my own paperwork. Yes, they have. Do they have a listings department that go out and do the photos for you and the, and the videos and create the listing for you on the portals? Yes, they have. Have they got someone who's got transport who can take a client to the place? Yes, they have. I'm thinking, Cameron, this place is good. Um, are they flexible with work? Can I be where I need to be? Technically, you should be in the office, but I'm hardly ever in the office because you know, I'm out doing what I need to do. So I was going through what my business mentor has taught me, thinking, do these companies have that? And it was only the one company that I went to that had that. And I thought, right, that's it. I'm straight in with these guys. What's been your biggest deal in Dubai so far? So my, my deals haven't been that big. You know, I've, what I've done is I've very much got a niche. I've gone for a niche. Now, everybody comes to Dubai. They say, I want to sell luxury villas in the Palm Jumeirah for 200 million dirhams. Yeah, because the commission you're going to earn, 2% on 200 million dirhams is good money, man. It's very, very good money. I went the opposite route. I went, okay, I've got a social media following. It's a small following, but it's genuine people that are interested in investments and making money. So I thought, okay, go and find a project that excites you, that you believe in and that you really like. And my CEO taught me that, uh, the guy who owns the company that I work at. He said to me, sell something that you love and believe in. Damak Lagoons, I think, is the most phenomenal project in Dubai. The concept is phenomenal. And when they finally release it, it's going to be something magical. So I believed in that project. And I took that project and I sold those units. Now, the first unit I sold was 2.7 million. And I sold it to a client who had been following me on social media. This client had been watching what I do. He reached out to me. And even then, when he reached out to me, I thought, oh, man, this guy's going to waste my time. I don't want to waste my time because I see him, blah, blah, blah. But I took him to the place. I go, you interested? He goes, yeah, let's do it. I go, and in my head, I'm thinking, what? I'm one day out of training. One day out of training. I've got the record for the company for the quickest sale. And he bought it. And when we were there doing the transaction, there's loads of other brokers because they have a massive launch event when a new product's launched. These brokers are coming up to me and saying, oh, you mate, what happened? You saw this with me. What happened? We were going to do some business together. He goes, what happened was that I didn't trust any of you and you were too forceful on me. And that's when it clicked inside my head. I thought, okay, I need to use this with other people. So I answered your question. To date, my biggest sale is probably around just under 4 million dirhams. So it's not big in terms of Dubai standards. So it's about 800, 800 grand. Uh, yeah, about maybe a, little, maybe a little bit more than that. Maybe a little bit more than that. But, you know, on that, you earn 17, 18,000 pounds. 
you know, which is one, half a year's salary. Yeah. Exactly, one transaction. Um, and then when you're paid that, you're like, oh my God, there's no tax? There's no deductions? So what I've done is I've carved out a niche market. Now, the thing that I'm most happy about is not the commission, the fact that some of those people that bought for 2.7 million, those properties are now worth 3.8 million. So they've made over a million dirhams in a period of six months just by putting their trust in me. That is the biggest kick for me. I've got people that have seen my post on social media, have flown to Dubai and met with me, and have purchased because they've trusted me on my content and liked me. So for me, it's a very personal thing. It's not like, if somebody comes to Dubai and they don't want to buy it, I'm cool with that. You know, I've shown you the product. I'm never going to force a sale down you. And I think the reason why that is, is I have a portfolio that pays me every month. In Dubai, if you're not selling, you're not eating. You know, my latest Instagram reel was about this, where there's so many brokers in the country, they need to sell you something. And if they're desperate to sell, they're going to take you to the shittiest product because the shittiest product gives you the most commission because people can't sell. Yeah? yeah. And they are going to try and place you there. They're going to force you. They're going to do everything. They'll tell you every lie under the sun. You're going to get 25% return on this on rent. You know, it's going to be a great product. All kinds of nonsense just to sell it to you. Whereas for me, I want to sell people stuff that's going to make them money. And I want to sell people stuff where they really, you know, they think to themselves, shit, I'm so glad I put my trust in James. Because I've made money. Because what does that do? Come on, you're in this game as well. When you make somebody money, they keep coming back to you. They're going to go and tell their uncle, their auntie, everybody about you. Go and see this guy. He's the only person you need to see. And that's what's happening. Snowball effects slowly happening. What's the biggest difference you've seen between Dubai real estate and UK real estate? Dubai is forefront cutting edge, man. Straight. Like they... Like, say, say you came to Dubai and I showed you a place and you said, James, I love it, I want to take it. But within five minutes, we'd have a contract raised. Within 10 minutes, you and the buyer are locked in. You give us a picture of a 10% check. You know, the check's not even cash. It's held on your file, yeah? They do, your solicitor will do the due diligence, you do, your, their side will do due diligence. And, you know, within a week or so, um, they're ready to transfer. Unless it's a mortgage-to-mortgage -mortgage deal, Cash to cash is very, very quick. Cash to mortgage is very, very quick. What I realized about Dubai, the biggest difference is that they're, they've got technology, man. They've got apps that do this stuff. Like, we can sit there and literally get legal stuff done. Documents are sent through WhatsApp, man. And everything is on the Dubai land apartment. Here we still get documents in the post. Exactly. But there's no, I don't, I've never seen a postman in Dubai. I've never received a letter. You know, so I think the technology that they got, and this is all down to the all down to the sheikhs, man. This is all their vision on making this so cutthroat. You're not cutthroat, making it so technologically advanced compared to anywhere in the world. I think, you know, if they came here and advised the UK, things would change, man, massively. You know, uh, a transaction in Dubai, how long does it take to complete? So if you've got a cash-to-cash -cash transaction, you've got cash, and the property you're buying is this got no mortgage on it. Oh, I've seen stuff happen in 48 hours. Okay. I've seen people arrive to the office with a suitcase full of cash. The money is counted. You go down to the government transfer office. Transfer's done. Title deeds are exchanged. There's the keys. Thank you very much. So why do you think UK don't embrace this tech? Uh, look, I don't want to diss the UK. But we're still, man, we're still in the dark ages here. 
But we've got solicitors still doing flipping witnessing. I want a wet signature. What the hell? What difference is a wet signature to seeing somebody on, a, on an app that can look at your face and record a message? That's got to be worth more than a signature, right? You've got DocuSign. Why can't DocuSign be used? You know, it records where the stamp's been done. Very difficult for somebody to forge it. But I just don't think they think like innovators. They're not innovators. They're quite happy. And I do think the days of solicitors are numbered, I personally feel. Because people are working in the background. There's blockchain technology. You've got all this kind of stuff going on. I think things need to shake up. Things need to change. I don't, I don't think the days of solicitors are numbered, but I think the, slowly the, the bottom of the food chain, they yeah. slowly will move. The, the people on the top who are the thinkers, they will remain. Yeah. The people who have the uh, motivation to get towards the top, they will remain. Yeah. Like you said, innovators. Because yeah. you've got ChatGBT now, that can do a lot. Artificial intelligence can do a lot. Google's version, Bard, that's yeah. really good. I've just been using that because yeah. that uses Google to create LinkedIn bots. There was a sales report, property market report that came out. I just used Bard to summarize it for me. Mm. As simple as that. So things like that would would help solicitors or in anything, accountants, solicitors. Yeah. But the bottom of the food chain, I think slowly, slowly, they all start going. And you're going to have to be a skilled worker if you're going to stay in an office environment. Yeah, yeah. So you've been in business in UK. You've been in business in... Dubai, what's the major difference in the two business communities? Um, I think in, in Dubai, uh, things are very streamlined. I think there's no nonsense there. You know, it's uh, like I said before previously, they're innovators. Uh, and I think the biggest thing I've seen in Dubai is people want to work with each other. You know, people want to grow together. There's a lot of money in Dubai. There's a lot of money that can be made in Dubai. And I think the biggest difference between Dubai and the UK is that in Dubai, everybody feels like they need to lift each other up, you know? People grow together. Whereas here, it can be quite tunnel vision. Somebody could just be doing their own thing. They're not really concerned with somebody what, what somebody else is doing. And if we go back to kind of the 70s, 80s, 90s, when our parents were starting businesses here or doing something, it was very much communities used to grow together. A couple of brothers will get together, put some money in. They may have an uncle who puts some money in, they'll buy a house. Or the typical example with Asians, they might live in a house together where there's five incomes coming in. There's one lot of food that's cooked every day. One person's taking care of the kids. Loads of people are working. They're putting their money together. They're making a house. The following year, they're building another house. And I feel Dubai has that. Dubai has very much a community focus. Whereas I think we've lost that here in the UK, in business as well. I've heard that in Dubai, because everyone's there for business or work, is very much uplifting and every conversation can be about business, but it's a, in a positive way, not in a draining way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, um, you can go to a coffee shop in Dubai, sit there, and chances are you're going to speak to somebody. Guaranteed you're going to speak to somebody or somebody's going to come up and speak to you. Here, I spent three hours yesterday in Costa Coffee in Beckton, and um, I'm like, damn, man, this place is dirty. You go to the toilet, there's no bum washers in the toilet. The toilets are dirty. Because you know, one thing you realize as soon as you go to Dubai is like everywhere is clean. You know, you go to a little, little Indian shop that sells like, you know, some cheap food. And you'd expect the toilet to be nasty. No, toilets are clean. You know, so I think the environments are different there. You could be in a juice bar. And like you say, you could have a conversation with someone. 
And it might be about, oh, brother, you know, I've got this new range of juices coming up, thinking about making these gym juices. And people start talking and the conversations and he's put a bit of input in, he's put a bit of input in, and it's really helped the person. People want to help each other, man, I feel. What would you say um, is the best thing you found about Dubai? That one thing that you think, you know what, everyone should go. Okay, there's a couple of things. Um, I, we were discussing this earlier. I think number one is I feel in the East End, uh, not even in East End, in the UK, in London, um, Islam is portrayed in a very negative light. Yeah? I'm not from the Islamic faith, but got a lot of Islamic friends. The, one of the best things I realized when I got to Dubai was that anybody who wants to see how peaceful Islam is, go spend a week in Dubai. Go to JBR Beach, go on there, be in your bikini, sunbathe, whatever you need to do. Go and have a drink. But at the same time, go and see the culture there. Go and see how important the faith is, but how peaceful the faith is. Here in the West, in, sorry, here in, in Europe, in London, it's always, you just see negative. You know, you see, okay, this is going on. You've got this leader portraying this. This is going on terrorism. One of the best things for me when I moved to Dubai was, I thought, I thought this in my head, I thought, anybody who wants to see how peaceful this faith is, come to Dubai. Come to Dubai and just walk around. And like I was saying to you earlier, I don't understand the prayers. I don't understand the language. But I can tell you one thing, when I'm out walking at five o'clock in the morning and that goes inside my brain, it's giving me a good feeling. I don't know what it is. A couple of people have sent me translations and when you read it, you think, no man, this ain't no, this ain't no kind of negative stuff. This is real strong faith words, man. So getting back to your question, best thing for me was to realise I already knew it was a peaceful religion because I've grown up in that culture. It's just naive people who think that. But you go to Dubai you realise, nah man, Islam is a peaceful religion. And it's so tolerant in Dubai that you can do whatever you want, but you cross the line with the religion, you've had it. And secondly, I think the second thing I really, really like about Dubai is it gives everybody hope. It gives everybody um, hope that you can achieve something, man. That you can make something of your life. Here in the UK, people are just like, ah oh, man, gloomy, you know? Yeah. I'm like walking down, I decided to walk to your office today. And you know, I'm naturally a smiley person. I smiled at someone and they're just fucking looking at me, who's this weirdo? You know, but there in Dubai, it's different. You can just say to someone, morning, assalamu alaikum, how's it going? You know, there's it's, hope. It's true, but I think going back to your media point where they portray Islam in a negative sense, generally the news that sells is all negative. Yeah. And because of that, it, drains everyone subconsciously it drains everyone yeah even the content on social media the ones that get the most views are the negative ones yeah if you say if you talk about you failing in your business everyone would be forwarding on whatsapp and everything but if you say you know what i've made it in dubai oh whatever man he's he showed it off. here anyway exactly yeah. and um, that negative energy just transfers to the people subconsciously and i think that's why generally we're just negative as people so to have positive energy is like wow so when you go to like a property networking event, like peak performance, for example, everyone's positive there. You feel much better after that. Yeah. yeah. That's what, that's what you I You know, you're think. surrounding yourself with people that are helping you grow. They're thinking on your level. And it's very, very important to get yourself around that circle. Now, I'm going to give you an example, yeah? 
I got dissed for this. I got really badly dissed for this on socials the other day. So being a typical Indian, I'm, I normally fly business class when I come back. And there's a very good reason why I do this, I'm going to tell you. When you fly business class, number one, Emirates has that bar area, yeah? When you're in that bar area for four hours on a flight, I'm talking to everybody in that bar because everybody in that bar has got money, straight up got money. And I have met clients in there that have transacted on a deal which has paid for my flight for 10 times. But I'm there because I want to uplift my thinking because I'm traveling in business class then I'm seeing someone in the first class cabin and I'm thinking, I want to go and talk to that guy. I want to know what he's doing to go there. It's like what you just said. You, get, you go into a peak performance event or you go into an event like that, people are like-minded. People are lifting you. People are thinking like that. And one of the people in my company, she said to me straight away, she goes, a lot of business happens in business class. Yeah. There's a reason why it's called business class. It's not pompous crap that, oh yeah, I want a better meal. But I'm not going to lie, man. This time I flew in economy for the first time in a long time. And Emirates economy is a good class to fly in. But I was stressed out. The level of conversation with the guy next to me was crap. He's talking about some Japanese anime stuff. I'm not interested. I've got some guy in front of him. He might as well have been sitting in my lap. My food was cold. My mood was off. And all I can see in the distance is business class. I'm thinking, you dick. You wanted to save some pennies and you thought you'd try it. There's a very good reason, man. You need to surround yourself. You need to be in a certain environment if you're going to grow and uplift yourself. What would you say now to James, who was in a cell at 20 years old? Oh, what would I say to myself right now? Oh, man. I would say, don't think you know it all, because you don't, yeah? Number two, be very, very humble because you never know when you're going to lose it all. And number three, just don't be a dick. Simple. Very simple advice, man. It's very, very simple. But Could when we're that age, we don't want to think about it. Uh, just a quick fire round before we finish. Yeah. Uh, favourite food? A pizza. Nice. Favourite holiday destination? Uh, Kerala. Ah, I've been there. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. Up the mountains. Yeah. And again, why? Very nice people. Large Christian population and large Islamic population living in harmony together. And it's, it's classed as a third world country, but it's a beautiful place. Actually, in Kerala, a lot of people, they would work as engineers and they'll go towards the Middle East yeah. or America. And then after... Five, ten years, they've made the money. They'll come back and settle. Yeah. I noticed that a lot. Beautiful place. Uh, favourite movie? Um, hold on, hold on. Uh, my favourite movie is Shawshank Redemption. A few people have said that. Yeah, seen it many times. And my next favourite movie, or probably side by side, is The Godfather. One, two and three. That teaches you a lot about business. Favourite book? Favourite book would be The Compound Effect. Darren Hardy. Absolutely love it. Have you read it? No, nope. but you need, to read, list. you need to read that book. Most, fa most famous person in your phone book? Most famous person in my phone book? Oh, man. It's probably famous in the sense that people know, but in terms of business, 
And locally in business, very well known, Nick Bassey from Charles Blake. Okay. Charles Blake Clothing, yeah. Phenomenal businessman. Phenomenal. And favourite day? Favourite day? I'll give you a clue. <laughs> My, you know what? Funny enough. <laughs> it was, yeah. I was going to say Sunday, but I would say Monday. You know why? Because it starts your week off. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Sunday's the first day of your week, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. James, thank you very much. No problems, brother. No problems. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.